Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Next guest will not be a stranger uh, likely to any of you out in the listening audience today. Professor Kishore Mabubani is the distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at NUS and uh, has had a 33-year career in diplomacy before going into higher education. He had postings in Cambodia, Malaysia, Washington, New York, twice Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations, served as a president of the UN Security Council, permanent secretary at the foreign ministry here in Singapore uh, as well from 93 to 98. Always a pleasure to have Kishore with us. Welcome to the show, Kishore. My pleasure to join you. Uh, nice to have you with us. And we, we, based on your decades of experience in international diplomacy, we've got to start with Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin is saying that there's been some progress on the diplomatic front to uh, stopping the bloodshed in, in Ukraine. What are you seeing uh, from your perspective? Well, I mean, I hope uh, President Putin is right when he says that because the Ukrainian people are clearly suffering a lot. Uh, it's good that the international community has condemned the invasion. Uh, yet at the same time, if you want to end a war, it's very important that you try to find a compromise that works for two warring parties. And that's never easy. Eh? When, two, when two countries go to war, both of them obviously have fundamental interests at stake. And asking countries to compromise on fundamental interests is never easy. But fortunately for us, I would say the greatest living American statesman uh, of today, Henry Kissinger, actually put forward a very reasonable solution in a Washington Post article in 2014. And I think his formula of 2014 is still the best formula for a compromise where on the one hand, the Ukrainian people will be free to choose whatever kind of government they want, whatever kind of association they want, they're completely free. They cannot be dominated by anybody. And then on the other hand, as Kissinger suggests uh, in his compromise formula, Ukraine would make a commitment not to join NATO. Mm. And since it was the Ukrainian membership of NATO that was declared by Putin to be the threat to Russia, so if Ukraine doesn't join NATO and maybe uh, it's a neutral state, as President Zelensky has said, Ukraine can be a neutral state, then I think you might have the fundamental outlines uh, of a compromise that might work for both Russia and Ukraine. And let's hope we agree to the compromise soon, because the longer the war carries on, more people will die, more people will suffer. Yeah, I recall that article. I think Kissinger said, find a solution that neither humiliates Russia nor humiliates Ukraine, which is the compromise we hope for. And which is why the international community, as you mentioned, have brought in many, many sanctions. More this week was seen from the UK, uh, sanctioning the oligarchs that are based in and around London. Where do you think these sanctions will lead to. What is the hope here, Professor? Because are we waiting for maybe the Russian middle class to rise up internally? Or are we waiting for Putin, Putin's sanctions to take hold and hurt the Russian economy? Because the longer this goes on, the sanctions hurt the sanctioning countries as well, don't they? So what do we hope is the end goal here? Well, I, I, you know, uh, as you know, there are two schools of thought on the... Um uh, sanctions. 
uh, one school of thought is that this would cause uh, Russia, the Russian people, the Russian government so much pain that Putin will say, okay, this is too much, I give up, you know. Uh, that, that's what you basically find uh, a lot in the Western media. Mm. But if you talk to others, they'll also tell you that the Russian people are very tough. They have taken a lot of pain and suffering uh, over the years. And as you know, in World War II, uh, no one expected them to put up such a heroic resistance to Hitler's armies, but they did so. So I, I don't think, I would say it's neither the case that Russia will never bend or that Russia will completely bend. But I think if there's sufficient, uh, it's got to be a combination uh, of sanctions and persuasion. It's got to be both. And diplomacy works best. And this is what I found after 33 years of diplomacy is that when you're dealing with people, you actually, you, for first start, you don't insult them. You treat them with respect and say, I'm actually going to propose something that's going to work for you also. And, just to write to that, sorry. I would say at the, at the end of the day, I think we can propose to Russia something that will work for Russia. And, at the, and, and also, you know, every country... Uh, doesn't want to lose face. So it's important that Ukraine and the Ukrainian government doesn't lose face mm. uh, in the compromise. And it's also important that the Russian government and also doesn't lose face. So that's, that's what diplomacy is all about, where you try to give uh, an off-ramp for both Ukraine and Russia, and at the end of the day, stop the fighting and save people's lives. That should be the, the goal of everything. And a very brief follow-up to that. Can Putin be diplomatic? Can Putin be? Diplomatic. Will he be willing to uh, compromise? Well, I think he, he, his uh, foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is one of the most competent diplomats uh, I've met in my life. I sat next to Sergei Lavrov, literally side by side for two years, uh, when Singapore was the uh, member of the UN Security Council in 2001-2002, the Russian ambassador to the UN at that time was Sergei Lavrov. So I've got to know him quite well. And I would say if you ask me to rank the top five diplomats I've met in my life, I would say Sergei Lavrov is one of them. He's super sharp and super capable. So I think the, the Russians are, 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 have played this game of diplomacy uh, for many years. And I would say that if you come across with a good formula that works, and I want to add just as an aside here, that a lot of people, as you know, are talking about how China can be a, a possible intermediary. I think it'd be good to get both China and India uh, as intermediaries because the, these are two countries that the Russians have worked with for many years. And to some extent, there's a lot of trust between Russia and China and Russia and India. So if you can get Russia, China and India to play the intermediary roles, then you're more likely to get a solution. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Professor Kishore Mabubani, uh, the uh, senior fellow, distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute, also a 30-plus year career diplomat. Kishore, uh, the conversations that have been having around diplomacy and sanctions and everything, um, I think, also fundamentally missed the point that this was uh, this was an unprovoked uh, military action uh, invasion of a scale that I think most people agree is not proportional 
to the pr- potential threat of Ukraine joining uh, uh, joining the European Union, and and it, it hadn't yet, it hadn't or NATO rather, it had mm-hmm. not joined NATO yet, and so this idea of preemption, which is what we saw with the U.S. in going into Iraq, for example, twenty years ago, um, is now uh, is is almost a fait accompli for countries who have a big enough stick, who've got a grudge against some potential thing that may happen in the future. Uh, and so it, 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 I don't know, it just it, it boggles my mind that now Putin is allowed to uh, to have some sort of a compromise deal in a situation where there was actually nothing, you know, nothing that was um, in his face as in uh, NATO had agreed to uh, accept Ukraine. There was no provocation. Well, I guess there was a there Beyond was a, the psych- long, there was a psychological yes, yes. Yeah, a psychological uh, uh, provocation, if you will. Uh, how do you see that? I mean, we are where we are today. We can't, you know, we can't turn back the, the hands of time. But all of a sudden, you know, somebody's getting his way. Let's be honest. Putin is getting his way. He's got boots on the ground. He's controlling territory, and yet now, you know, somebody who had no re- need to compromise with him is being forced to compromise. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. This uh, invasion is illegal and unjustified and has to be condemned. I mean, that's very, very clear. And I think, the, as you know, the United Nations uh, General Assembly has condemned uh, the uh, invasion. But as you know, in, in, in life, especially in geopolitics, you, can, you, you, you have to moralize, uh, but you also have to analyze if you want to find a solution. Mm. And, and geopolitics is a very cruel, difficult game. Hmm. Uh, and it's not, it's not one that you can find easy uh, black and white solutions. Unfortunately, most, most solutions to most geopolitical problems, no matter where in the world, uh, let's say, for example, North Korea, for example, will be very difficult. So you have to accept that those difficulties. And you also have to acknowledge that in many ways... The war clearly hasn't gone according to Putin's war plans. Mm. And, and I think it's very clear that uh, President Putin has also suffered a lot of setbacks uh, in this uh, uh, campaign so far. So I think that's why that's why we now have the possibility uh, of a compromise. Because I actually expected, as many other people expected, that the Russian military force would be so overwhelming, they yep. would launch a blitzkrieg with tanks yep. and take over uh, Ukraine in a matter of days. And most Western military analysts actually expected Ukraine to fall within a couple of days. Yeah. The fact that it hasn't after two or three weeks is quite stunning. It shows you that the Ukrainians are putting up a heroic resistance. And President Zelensky, as you know, has emerged as a real hero in this exercise. He's the exact opposite of President Ashraf Ghani, who ran away from Afghanistan the first time. He was the first, first one out of the door, wasn't he? He was the first one on the plane. Yeah. And <laughs> Zelensky has yeah. stayed to fight. And so yeah. clearly, things are not going the way of President Putin too. So there's no way he can declare that he's had a major victory if you have a compromise. And at the end of the day, uh, I think the key priority should be to save Ukrainian lives. Mm. And that the best way to do it is through a compromise. Yeah, and, and compromise is key, of course, in geopolitics, but also precedence. Setting precedence is also a concern, Professor. Very interesting, obviously, that Singapore was very quick to come out and condemn the illegal invasion. But when you are talking about an illegal invasion, a bigger nation invading a smaller nation, 
Is there a concern or a fear that it does set a very worrying precedent for the 21st century? Uh, of course. <laughs> that's why Singapore has taken a very consistent stand over the years. And so that's also why Singapore has invested a lot uh, in its own defence. And, and so today, uh, I would say relative to where Singapore was 30 to 40 years ago, we are very fortunate to be much more secure than we were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what a couple of quick questions. Then I want to move on to talking about your book. Uh, we we want to spend a lot of time talking on that. Uh, first question: um, Does this hurt Russia's relations with China in the long run? And how do we give Putin a way out so that he will compromise? You've touched on that a little bit already. The, those two questions coming in, though. Um, but especially that second one: Does this hurt Russia's relations relationship with China mm. in the long run? That's from think? our listener. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the um, it has certainly increased Russia's dependence on on, on China, hmm. and in the case of China, of course, you know China has both won and lost from this Ukrainian episode. It has won in the sense that the West has now become so distracted with Ukraine that that they have no time to put pressure on China <laughs> and the United States, as you know. As I document in my book, as China won, is stepping up its uh, pressure on China as part of the U.S.-China geopolitical contest. That has now been put aside. So in that sense, that may be a small win for China. But at the same time, the Chinese don't like chaos. The Chinese don't like disruptions. And certainly, the, there has been a re-galvanization of Western solidarity. And that's not a positive development uh, for for China, so you notice that China, the Chinese have been very very careful. They haven't endorsed the Russian invasion of Ukraine. At the same time, they're also trying to see whether they can play the role of intermediary. And it's good yeah. that President Macron and Olaf Scholz have spoken to President Xi about China playing an intermediary role. Well, that's a nice segue into your book, The Asian yeah. 21st Century, where you look at the changing relationships between East and West. And as we move into talking about your book, what role do you see Singapore playing, if any, in that East-West relationship as we move away from the Ukraine invasion and towards the 21st century generally? What role does Singapore play in these changing relations? Well, I actually think that uh, Singapore has a golden opportunity uh, in the Asian 21st century because, you know, that's, I, I think there's no doubt that the 21st century will be the Asian century. And, and I think that's probably why, to my absolute surprise, 1.1 million copies of the book have been downloaded in two months. Uh, uh, you know, it's a free book and that's, it's quite stunning, actually. It's all in, in downloaded in 90 countries around the world. And I was very puzzled by why this happened. But I think it, it reflects the fact that people acknowledge and accept that the 21st century will be the Asian century. Now, what's interesting is that in the 19th century, which was the European century, London was the natural capital of the European century. The 20th century was the American century, and New York was the natural capital of the American century. So similarly, if you're looking for a natural capital of the Asian century, that natural capital is Singapore. Because Singapore is the only modern uh, functioning city in Asia where all the major civilizational strains operating in Asia come together. You have the Chinese civilizational strain, you have the Indian 
civilizational strain, you have the Islamic civilizational strain, and also you have the Western civilizational strain uh, operating in Singapore. So if Singapore is a place where all the major civilizations come together, therefore it's a natural place to emerge as the capital of the Asian century. So what does that mean for your friends at the foreign ministry and, and elsewhere, Minister of Foreign Affairs rather, uh, here in government? What are the steps that either they are taking currently or need to be taking right away to promote that idea of Singapore being the center of Asia? Well, I think it's not just an exercise that will be done by the uh, foreign ministry alone. Because, you know, one reason why London and New York uh, became the respective capitals of the centuries is that they were also intellectual and cultural centers. Mm. And, and, and clearly, New York was the intellectual center of the American century. So, therefore, the universities in Singapore, actually, it's quite stunning that for a small country like Singapore, we have at least two universities ranked among the top in the world, NUS and NTU, and then we have other budding uh, universities like SMU and SUTD. So it's quite amazing. So it's the quality of your universities, it's the quality of your think tanks. And, uh, you know, so, and also, of course, uh, the cultural side is equally important. And here, the museums, the concert halls uh, play an equally important role uh, in establishing ourselves as a capital of the Asian century. So people, you know, all around the world. Who are, who are sort of saying, hey, you know, the 21st century is the Asian century. If I had to go for one-stop shopping, if I had to go to find one place where I can learn all about the different dimensions and aspects of Asia, it's actually very difficult uh, to, to uh, match what Singapore can offer. Because if you want to learn about China, you go to Shanghai or Beijing. If you want to learn about India, you go to... Uh, Mumbai or, or, or Delhi, but you don't get you don't get a feel of all of Asia. Whereas what's good about Singapore is that it brings together all the streams of Asia, and of course, even the most important thing I also have to emphasize is that you also got to be a culinary center, hmm. and Singapore is a food paradise, and that will that's a critical part of being the capital of the Asian century because all Asian foods mm. can be found here too. Yeah. This is so fascinating, Professor. But we are at a very interesting juncture, though, aren't we, with this issue? Because long-term, yes, International Centre Singapore. Short-term, you have to reconcile the domestic concerns that come with that. The rise of populism, the fear of xenophobia. We saw it played out in Trump's America. We saw it play out in Brexit in the UK. That there would be a little bit of short-term pain if Singapore is going up to open up internationally. The Singaporean government has to reconcile that with possible pushback from the classic, we fear losing our jobs to foreigners. We've seen a lot of rhetoric in recent months about that, this sense of populism that, you know, Singaporean jobs first, and then we worry about foreigners. So how does the Singaporean government overcome that in the short term? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there are populist pressures uh, all over the world. Uh, and as we saw in the 2011 elections, there are populist pressures in Singapore too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, I think the Singapore population, in my view, uh, is smart enough and astute enough to know that if indeed uh, Singapore is perceived by the rest of Asia and by the rest of the world to be the capital of the Asian century, I think Singapore, Singaporeans will be very proud 
uh, of the place of Singapore in the world, and also very will be very proud to, for example, welcome the best the best artists, the best musicians, uh, the best cooks and chefs from the world. We will come to Singapore. We want to come to Singapore. So, in in and and in terms of uh, uh, securing talent to come to Singapore, uh, I, I don't think the Singapore population will object to that because, as you know. Uh, actually, Singapore has got the great benefit of enjoying full employment, and and it actually creates more opportunities for Singaporeans to get jobs if the economy and society uh, are, are thriving. So I think that that vision of yeah. Singapore as an open cosmopolitan center uh, is a vision that can be sold to the uh, Singapore population, and I hope that this will give another reason. Uh, for Singaporeans to, uh, to read my book, the Asian Twentieth <laughs> Century, and, but I can tell you, I'm actually shocked that out of the 1.1 million downloads, there were 400,000 downloads in Singapore alone. Wow! I didn't know there were 400,000 serious book readers in Singapore. That's, that's a very, very encouraging statistic, and it shows that Singaporeans, therefore are very, very interested in the Asian 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have 400,000 downloads. They Keep- don't read my books in those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> very different books. I very different that. books. Uh, Keisha, our final uh, quick question. We do have to let you go. But um, in this collection, the Asian 21st century, uh, your book, and I have put the link in our Facebook Live page so anyone can just get on there and download the book for free. Uh, is there one essay in particular that you feel strongly about that you really either enjoyed writing or feel strongly that it's one that everybody needs to read? Well, I would actually recommend the introduction uh, because in the introductory introductory essay, I try to actually explain the broad theme uh, that runs through all the essays and also try to summarize how the... uh, idea of the Asian century evolved over the last few decades because I've been writing about this uh, Asian's re-emergence for 30 years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first essay called The West and the Rest was published in 1992, exactly 30 years ago. Wow. So so there's been a, a long process in the evolution of my ideas and the introduction tries to explain the process and also explains the sort of intellectual antecedents that have led to where we are today. Well, it's a fascinating read. I read some of it last night. I particularly loved the essay on Western hypocrisy. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, The book is called The Asian 21st Century. It's available for free. And Glenn has put the link in our Facebook page, Glenn. And as always, thanks to Kishore Mabubani for uh, joining us. Always great to have you on and, and listen to your perspective on things. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.